Welcome to The Ethics of Caring, an ongoing project that explores what it means to be ethical in the arts. Hi, I'm Lihi Levy. I'm a contemporary art conservator, one of the curators for the podcast, and your host for this episode. For full disclosure, today's guest and I used to live together in The Hague. She was already working in human rights law, and I was doing an internship at the Dutch Cultural Heritage Agency as a part of my professional conservation education at the University of Amsterdam. I will let Nupul introduce herself in her own words. <laughs> Hello, I'm Nupur Prakash. Um, I am a gender and law expert. I've been working in the area of um, rule of law development for about uh, seven years now. Uh, and I have a legal background um, in international law. Um, and I'm, I'm very interested in, uh, you know, applying uh, principles of human rights and gender equality in, in everything I do. And that really um, shapes my lens about how I view the world. While living together, Nupur and I began a tradition of having political, ethical and sociological discussions over coffee way too early in the morning before we both went to work. We came from different worlds, different professions, different countries, and different cultural references. But it was clear from the first meeting, when I was sitting awkwardly on the living room sofa, being interviewed for a room in her house, that our core values brought us together. And now, several years later, I finally get to be the one holding the mic, interviewing her in my own field, Somehow, still sitting awkwardly on a sofa, recording from our now separate homes. I would like to take this opportunity to apologize for the audio quality. We're trying our best to improve as we go. So why did I ask Nupur to participate in this podcast, you ask? She did too. I think um, <laughs> that is uh, the main reason I wanted to, to talk to you for this podcast is uh your practical uh take on your values i feel that um i mean of course you, you studied law and then you chose to pursue it in a way that has the general good in mind so um in the context of figuring out how uh, i as a conservator of cultural heritage can think of the general good in a, in a more global way, uh, I would really mm -hmm. love to hear uh, how you do it, how you apply it in your practice. Oh, th that's very kindly. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I think uh, there are some very basic principles and, you know, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer from my background, but um, I think we often conflate uh, the or not conflate but i think lawyers in itself don't don't uh, always integrate let's say principles of human rights or gender equality i think in our le legal education we do we do study it but of course you know there, there are many different kinds of laws and your your focus in law school is a bit different i think this is a lit little bit more the let's say the social the social justice approach or the human rights approach, which I think is applicable 
and is cross cutting um, across all you know should be across all sectors um in the world where, where should i begin with i mean i can begin with a bit about uh, how i look at human rights and why i think it's um why i think it's important yes please um so i mean in 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 legal terms or i think uh, you know when with the development of let's say the with the universal declaration of human rights uh, you know after after the end of world war 2 and when the united nations were created this sort of concept started building on, on what we mean by that and i think um there were sev- seven sort of basic principles that were identified um which uh were let's say inalienable rights of people so i think that's what human right is it's not something that the state gives you mm-hmm. it's something that each person we recognize is born with and is entitled to um and and those are uh, dignity uh and non-discrimination um equality uh autonomy and uh, accountability participation and uh, proportionality um of course these principles can be applied uh, you know in many different ways depending on the context uh but i think personally in in the work that i do um uh, you know non discrimination and equality um and participation and accountability are extremely important um because um, this ensures that um the person is in the at the center of whatever you're doing and we sometimes call it the uh, we call it the human rights based approach um and then uh, you know that coupled with the work that i do on gender equality uh which uh, derives sort of its principles from um, uh the cedaw convention which is <clears throat> the convention on the elimination of discrimination against women uh this was a global treaty that was adopted in um, that was sort of released in 1979 and since then i i, I think more than 100 uh, countries have signed and ratified it um so the cedo convention actually very beautifully highlights what these principles mean in terms of um, gender equality and i think the biggest takeaway from the cedo convention is their concept of substantive equality uh which is not just equality of opportunity uh but equality of outcome um and i think that's very important because you'll see that um around the world whether it's you know um whether it's breaking the glass ceiling or any other sort of um government related policies where they want to encourage uh, equal participation in men and women they all, always talk about equality of opportunity but what they miss out is the whole concept of leveling the playing field since everybody mm-hmm. comes from sort of different areas and experiences and so many a times equality of opportunity is not the same you know if if you have someone who has had uh you know a, a private school education and uh a, let's say a tutor um and uh, you know native english speaking skills uh and you put that person against someone who's you know at least let's say in my country had gone to a a government school um does uh, speaks a uh, a vernacular language as their native language and you know does not have really good english skills 
um and then you both you give them both the opportunity to sit an exam it is the probability <clears throat> of the person uh, who's uh, uh who's had these uh, sort of extra steps uh, and extra privileges of of making it through that exam is much higher and that's why it you know that's a very small and simple example of why equality or opportunity should not be our main goal but we should also be looking at the various enabling factors in which we can make sure that a person has equality of outcome so you know for example uh, um, temporary measures like quotas you know are an example of mm-hmm. how you can um, enable that or various other policies um, you know free education for you know kids who belong to a certain economic uh, category um other ways i mean of course these have to be we we can't take a one size fits all approach to this it it depends on the on the circumstances and the situation uh but i think that's another key area that we we really look at when we talk about gender equality in the work that we do um that is equality of outcome and not just equality of opportunity mm-hmm. um and i think that applies across um you know the concept of equality i don't think it should be limited to when we talk about men about men or women but you know whether it's racial equality or income mm-hmm. equality um yeah in my opinion i think that should be that should cut across nupul speaks of human rights based practices that can be applied across all disciplines as a carer of cultural heritage and arts i wanted to understand what is the impact of the objects i treat i think uh you said several things that kind of drew my attention and made me um immediately think of the connections to to my practice in my field the field of uh, conservation mm. um you mentioned human rights based approach and i think that's beautiful yeah. it's like it's such a beautiful um term also it made me think of asking you what in your experience um what is the place of cultural heritage in human rights um i think cultural heritage is extremely uh important uh because it relates uh, very closely to a person's um identity um i think the, the world that we live in um our our identities our our unique identities um it's very important that we we are hold, we we are able to hold on to that narrative of self and of the communities we come from um i think unfortunately due to um let's say colonization um and capitalism and just the sort of economic structure of the world we are also very much at risk of losing that if we don't uh sort of put a uh, particular attention to one's cultural heritage um and 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 that's why you know there's a there's a lot of conversation for example right now around uh decolonizing um your approaches to many academic disciplines right yeah. so it's a, it's an approach that cuts across various disciplines but it was very interesting because recently i was having a conversation with a colleague about decolonization and he said he said something to me which you know i hadn't thought about earlier which but it 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 made complete sense um he said something about decolonization of the mind 
Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's not it's not just um, what we see in tangible outcomes, but it's also about how um, our sort of the way we think has been captured by this global north perspective. If that makes sense, um, we've kind of lost, uh, let's say, our our cultural or heritage or that 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 sort of perspective because we've been educated a certain way which has been dictated by let's say the global north as well mm-hmm. so the way we look at things um the way we uh the way we what we consider beautiful or not um and and a very simple example of that is like eurocentric beauty standards right the, the country that I come from in 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 Asia, and this is prevalent across Asia, that we've been battling, let's say, Eurocentric beauty standards since colonization, and it, it still goes on. Um, and that again is an example of how we sort of negated our cultural beliefs. Do you feel like it's present also in your approach to um, to art and other cultural heritage aspects? Uh, of course, yes. I mean, I think I've spent a lot of time unlearning it once I realized I had it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I think it's the way you're taught about it. Um, so I had a very British upbringing in terms of the school I went to. You know, I grew up in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in Calcutta, which was the former uh, capital of the of the British Empire, so it was the second biggest city after London, uh, which meant that the city, if you look at the old city, is is basically built uh, with these Victorian standards and, and and buildings that look like London. But also, when we go to school, we study the Renaissance or we study European art. Uh, we in fact didn't study Indian art as much in detail. Um, really, you which did is, not study. Yeah. No, we didn't. Wow. Like it was very. We studied a bit about the Bronze Age, um, a few, a little bit about the, let's say, the Indus Valley civilization and the sort of like, uh, you know, the art that was being produced and the artifacts that were recovered. But um, I am well, much more wor- in well versed about Renaissance uh, architects and uh, the style of paintings that you can find in in modern Italy and in uh, Spain and other parts of Europe than I can tell you about India. And, and I, I think that shows that there was certain, a certain type of, a, let's say, um, a superiority. Uh, we felt that, this, that European art is superior. And I think it's only very recently in the last couple of decades that there's been sort of a movement in India where you, there's so much more empowerment of people who work in the handicraft, um, that, um, you know, there are a lot of like these um, artists who are working with these, um, you know, smaller handloom and handicraft artists, which are living in these like tiny villages in India, working with them to ensure that they get a fair pay because, you know, they spend months making these pieces. And uh, now there's sort of a movement where they're reclaiming the space of like Indian art uh, or the cultural art. And, you know, India as a country is huge. So every every region has its own art. Uh, but we didn't study any of that because I think we had adopted this sort of mentality from our, let's say, former colonizers where European art 
was uh, was considered superior. <laughs> it's it's that principle, right? The the more you see something, the more you become familiar to it, and then. Um, I think so it's exposure too. Yeah, it's exposure exactly. I think there is a lot more exposure now. There are so many more mm-hmm. opportunities for these artists to display their work in exhibits in India and around the world. Um, there's it's also the quality of outcome. I love yeah. something. <laughs> <laughs> there's also, I must say, that there's greater interest also in the global north or in 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 amongst artists uh, from other parts of the world to learn more about this. I think mm-hmm. there's been a shift. Because I think um, back in the day it was it was different, right? Like I think Europeans considered their art to be superior, um, or they they did not know much more about what was going on in other parts of the world. But I think, and I and I think it's the same with like you know uh, the the tribal art in Africa and uh, from other places. Um, the now now you see a lot more of that present in um, in Europe. Uh, but I think it's like a double-edged sword because I think um, often it's also to commercialize it. To monetize is, it. To monetize yeah. it, it's kind of sad. Uh, I mean, there have yeah. been so many in- instances, for example, where big fashion houses uh, like Christine Dior have been accused of like, you know, plagiarizing um, mm-hmm. artworks from like uh, small artist- artists in India or like um, mm-hmm. copying designs which have been, uh, you know, centuries old. Uh, relating to a particular community in India, and suddenly you see this on the on the runway, um, and th- there is no sort of engagement. Like it's not like they take consent from these communities, or they they reimburse these communities, or that these communities get uh, profits out of this. It's it's just that you know. Can you imagine like the, this sort of art does not have a patent, right? So. Um, you can basically steal it and and <laughs> the only way to get any sort of compensation is a legal recourse but because you've not gotten a patent saying this art belongs to this community you also don't have that uh, method of accountability these discussions raise many questions about the practice of conservation are we but museum workers and freelancers looking for the next collector client, or do we have a bigger responsibility? How can we care for a cultural heritage that did not gain the status of a commodity in the Northern Hemisphere? Can we learn from the knowledge that lies within these cultures while keeping them alive? And how does the role of the conservator change if we intend for our practices to facilitate this notion? It can be interesting to learn from other disciplines and see how they rethought their structures. Nupal has some examples of that. Actually, the other day I was, because um, I also work a bit on uh, climate justice, um, and I was reading about something called, um, there's this very like big movement in sort of the international community uh, to uphold this this right of you know indigenous people when it, when it comes to something called free prior and informed consent, um, you know where free, um, free prior and informed informed consent, consent FPIC, want, yeah. uh, they call it, and basically it was um, recognized as a right uh, that pertains to ind- indigenous people under the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. 
um and it's it's a bit different from art because this relates to let's say conservation of natural resources so like you know mm-hmm. forests and lands but i think in principle it's the same it's uh, and in this in, in this context it comes up because a lot of times you have these big corporations who go and buy who who you know strike deals with governments and who buy these lands that have traditionally belonged to indigenous communities uh, and they do it without the consent of these communities um and these communities for centuries let's say have been like following certain practices you know sustainable practices of soil uh, preservation and um, you know taking care of the environment um and so now there's sort of a growing movement in the international community that when this sort of trade happens that indigenous people should be consulted their their consent should be taken um and how important it is in terms of climate action and climate justice and i think it's similar to what we're talking about in art uh, and cultural heritage that i think that there should be a more um of like there's a should be a lot more awareness of you know not just capturing another person's um art or the beauty produced but like understanding what the cultural uh, context mm-hmm. is um and then giving them the space to speak about it because it's it's their ownership right it's not it's not yours to take just because it's it's beautiful yeah that's beautiful that's a, a really interesting connection um that you're making i think we have uh a lot to learn i mean i'm a conservator that's operating in in the western world and it's it's always it's a struggle because as a laborer i i am always complicit with the bigger structures and of course mm-hmm. um, if i am working for a museum uh, or if i would choose to work with a big collector or something like that just as a as a finding work for myself would would mean that i'm complicit sorry <laughs> with um with these uh forces just by living here in the west mm. um, i don't know i don't i don't agree with that no okay I, elaborate no, please I, i always believe that uh, engagement and conversation is is an important tool to make making things better i i don't believe in um i i mean i i think that's a more constructive way of bringing change uh because the um, a we know that a lot of times people tend to do certain things you know for example what we just discussed uh due to ignorance or or the same education that we're talking about right so like that that conversation about colonization of minds we we've, we've all got in a similar education and and unless one goes to seek out knowledge particularly on something it's really hard uh, to know where you're going wrong so i think it's uh, a lot of us learn from our colleagues from our peers from our friends um you know you and i learned so much from each other that we were so ignorant about um and if i were to say oh i was i'm not going to engage with uh, person x because oh they do this then a i'm not giving that person a fair opportunity to understand where that person comes from it could totally be 
you know uh, a space of ignorance and not sort of willful willful malicious intent to steal um and then also i i miss the opportunity of creating space for people like me right mm-hmm. um I, there's so much conversation about uh representation and the glass ceiling and i think it's 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 really important to use those sort of um steps uh because um, you also in that process create space for other people like you to get there um so i i don't think that by uh working in museums in the west or or working for you know companies who work around this in in the west you become complicit i think when you have that opportunity what you do with that really defines your actions if you were to be working for a museum here right and uh and you had the opportunity to let's say do a brown bag lunch on what we're discussing right now and you gather 10 people who are working with you and you speak about this mm-hmm. and they've never had this conversation before they have no idea what you're talking about and you use that opportunity to share um you know resources with them to introduce them to you know academics who write or who've done work on this um i'm sure there'll be people who would feel like they had no idea and uh, who who understand where you're coming from and i i i think that's that's really important yeah i i love that i love that approach and i think we all uh wish this podcast to to do something uh similar to what you're talking about just to open people's mind to this sort of conversation um so i i really appreciate you saying that a little bit less uh pessimistic maybe that my <laughs> in previous statement uh yeah. yeah i mean i think when i was younger i would have taken a more hardline approach mm-hmm. but i think in my career as a, a as someone who works in gender equality um i realized that you you take your small wins and and you that's how you make a difference you don't you don't just make a t- difference by taking a stand i don't think you achieve anything by that i think you have to find ways to engage with people and make them see your point of view um and uh, i think and you know that conversation around echo chambers um and that's precisely what's wrong right that the echo mm-hmm. chambers take place because we don't engage with people um either we think it's pointless or we think it's just wrong but uh, it's it's important amen i think uh, we've reached the end of our time um i would really want to thank you nupo for your brilliant points and very inspirational interview Oh, thank you. I'm very very happy you could join us as a guest on this podcast. My pleasure. I'm I'm actually learning as I'm speaking because um oh. uh That's yeah, beautiful. because it's <laughs> No, I what I mean by that is uh um uh, th- there's just, you know, I I work in a different field, but it's amazing how uh we we need to look at these basic principles um no matter which field we work in um 
to be make to make sure that you know the world uh, recognizes the value of um, you know self determination of people definitely yeah that's that's a good uh that's a good wrapping up i think that's the main main point i think uh i learned a lot from you i'm uh very excited uh, to share our conversation listening back to this interview i admire how nupur and i could always bounce off each other each bringing our expertise to the conversation why then is it so hard to listen to myself speak why this awkward energy i guess that comes from the feeling that i have many questions but i don't hold answers and that's okay maybe if we keep asking each other questions and ourselves we will get closer to our mutual goal of truth and justice or more importantly to each other hi my name is natalia swanson and i am one of the co-producers for this podcast this is the end of episode 4 we hope you enjoy the conversation and will join us in another few weeks for another episode where we will build on the conversation and talk about what it means to enact this work practically within institutional settings We are continually asking ourselves what it means to embed values like empathy and compassion, vulnerability into our decisions, learning more from each conversation we have as the weeks progress. And to this end, we're holding an hour at 9 a.m. Pacific time, 12 p.m. Eastern time on the 15th of February for anyone who wants to come and share their thoughts about the content we've been discussing. I would love to compare notes with someone who has also enacted Tina's strategy for organizing time to align with values. We will post a link on whatisconservation.com. Um would love to hear your thoughts or feedback. Finally, I'd like to extend a sincere message of gratitude to the granting agencies that have provided us the support to pay everyone who's involved in the project, the Winneter University of Delaware Program in Art Conservation, and the Society of Winneter Fellows. We could not do this project without that support, so thank you for believing in us. Um and thank you for everyone who's still listening. It means a lot. We'd also like to recommend that you check out our social media pages and whatisconservation.com where the podcast is hosted. See you in a few weeks. Until soon.